I broke format today because I liked too many of Liz's topics. Oh, sure. So <laughs> I, I put one of yours in place of a write-in, if that's all right. Yeah, I don't know yeah, why yeah. you would be bothered by me breaking my own format, but <laughs> in case you're a stickler for that sort of thing, now's the time to complain. My name's Elizabeth French. I'm Erica. And I'm Jim Stormdancer, and this is Topic Lords, the only place on the internet you can hear topics discussed. Elizabeth, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? Um, so Erica and I talked about something that I'm really excited to plug. Uh, it's an organization called Oyate. They're online at oyate.org. Um, and how do, you, how do you spell that? O-Y-A-T-E dot org. Um, they're a Native American organization that works to make sure that children and youth have materials that represent Native Americans with integrity and dignity. Uh, so they do that partially as a publishing house, but they also publish all sorts of educational materials for adults who work with children about how to select books that have Native Americans in them. Very cool. So, and Erica, yeah. would yeah. you like to introduce, introduce yourself or do you have anything to plug? Or you can follow up on that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm Erica and I, I don't have anything like that to plug, but I will go ahead and plug a game that I found that I like a lot. Uh, it's called Glitter Mitten Grove. Uh, it's full of surprises. <laughs> I think you should play it. I, I'll check it out. People who listen to this podcast love surprises, so <laughs> maybe they should check it out too. Jim, this is Justin's wife, Elizabeth, and um, I guess we all had to like be a little bit hidden about our identities and stuff during the Frog Fractions arc, so I didn't even know that she was working on some of the puzzles until after the arc ended. But, oh, wow. Um, yeah, so she was a contributor. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, um, Justin and I would, would sit down and, and write out how the puzzles were um, going to go that we worked on together, and then he would go write them and I would chase babies. <laughs> <laughs> that's something that you definitely have in common, although uh, Justin and Elizabeth have more babies than, uh, than you do, Jim. So, <laughs> <laughs> How old are your kids, Jim? I uh, I just have the one. He's um, Winston is twenty two months. Oh wow! So he's he's um, actually pretty close in age to our Henry. He's eighteen months. Oh yeah, it's a fun age. Yeah, Henry ripped the handle off the refrigerator today. <laughs> <laughs> he's like he's this bruiser. He's eighteen months old and he's only seven pounds lighter than Bert is, and Bert's four. <laughs> and he wanted string cheese and he just, you know, there's a childproof lock on it and he managed to just pull the entire refrigerator handle off. Wow. <laughs> so Yeah. Winston is definitely strong enough to open the refrigerator, but he hasn't figured that out yet. Yeah. That's nice. <laughs> Gosh, I was, I've, uh, I've watched both of these kids come into being and like go from zero to full blown kid. And they're both like little walking chaos machines. Yeah. And and they both have like some kind of penchant for string cheese that gets them in trouble. But <laughs> you know, it's one of the snacks they can feed themselves. Okay. And so it's it's like in the kid snack area of the fridge. But chaos, little chaos demons is about right. Justin and I were talking earlier today and he told me um that my children were very stubborn and that if his first four children had been like this, he probably hadn't wouldn't have two more. <laughs> But um, the Bert string cheese story 
I think is worth oh, God. is worth telling <laughs> because this is the this is eventually also the story of why you don't have a phone. Yeah. So a couple, well, I, I would say a couple weeks ago, but in quarantine, who knows? It it could have been you know ten years ago. <laughs> <laughs> On my phone in the living room, pretending like I wasn't there, so that my kids would let me read my book. And Bert hopped up into my lap and he had a string cheese that was like super mangled and he'd been trying to get it open and he couldn't get it open. And he asked me to open it and I, I couldn't get it open either. So eventually I had to, you know, kind of put it in my mouth and sort of rip the plastic off. And I handed it to him and he said, thanks, mommy. The string cheese was so slippery after it fell in the potty with my poop. (laughs) (laughs) And then he just like hopped off my lap and ran off. And I was, I was just looking at him. I was like, I'm going to die from dysentery. (laughs) And when that happens, I want, I called my sister. I said, when that happens, you tell him she died because of you and your string cheese. (laughs) Um, So, and then of course, three days ago, he dropped my phone in the toilet and he got that things that you drop in the toilet are yucky. So instead of just bringing it to me, which probably would have been fine because it's water resistant, he washed it and he really made sure to get the soap like deep into that charging port. At least he didn't very flush diligent. it, right? You know, like it could have been, it could have been also like a very expensive plumbing expedition in the auto commode. <laughs> no, he was, he was so proud of himself because he'd used soap and everything, just like we wash our hands after the potty. Frankly, I'm proud so. of him too. That's a, that's a pretty, uh, that's a pretty big leap for a kid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's very good. No, I didn't, I didn't get upset. I was really proud of myself. <laughs> <laughs> Good job. This is an excellent argument to not own any anything expensive. You know, Justin and I say all the time, kids don't mean you can't have nice things. Kids mean you can't have things. <laughs> <laughs> you can't have nice things for like 26 years and then you can start having nice things again, I think. Yeah, I hope so. We'll have grandkids, but then at least if the nice things get broken, the kids will probably... <laughs> Well, we all having nice things in your house, but not being in charge of chasing the kid around when they're around is got to be nice, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you Are you ready for some topics? Yeah. Hit me with topics. Uh, Elizabeth, your topic is, I'm going to have to ask you to leave the goat outside, driving the bookmobile in rural Washington. Yeah. So for a couple of years, I drove the bookmobile throughout rural Washington in Island County, which is uh, San Juan Islands, um, mostly would be. And uh, start start out by what is a bookmobile? Oh yeah, okay. So a bookmobile is like the fantasy of every nerd, nerd, like every little nerd girl. It is a giant red school bus, but instead of seats inside, it's a library. <laughs> and I drove for for three counties. Um, so I had one that was literally a red school bus with a library in the back, and another one that was um maybe a little bit smaller it was a Mercedes Sprinter. And so we're talking about. 18 feet. You have this really cool swivel chair that swivels forward so you can drive. You get the library books all ready. You strap them into these like tilted shelves so they don't slide off when you're driving. The library books have seat belts. Basically, yeah, they actually do. And a hydraulic lift so that you can get them in and out. And of course, the librarians, when we're back at the service center, love to take rides on the hydraulic lift Uh and then bark at children that they can't touch the hydraulic (laughs) lift when we're at schools. You drive up and then throw open the doors to the school bus, your chair swivels around and a computer pops out so that you can check people out. And it's a little mobile library that goes to places that can't afford to have a regular library building or maybe don't have a large enough population um, to really warrant that. 
That's incredible. It's really cool. So we also would go into some places that didn't have Wi-Fi. Um, and that would uh, give people at least for a few hours an opportunity to come and use our mobile hotspot and check their email or more importantly, um, file, do things like file for unemployment or use any government websites that they don't normally have access to. This is like a very serious version of the Oscar Mayer wiener dog mobile. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it's, it was a, it's a really cool experience, especially when you go into really rural areas, because where people, when you're in a town that only has a population of maybe 300, people don't see each other. Except they come kind of down out of the mountains once a once a month to twice a month to go see the library, and so and so you wow. get to have this really interesting um, relationship with these places where you are, like I said, I mean, you, you see the other citizens as much as they see each other. This is this is like how if you live in an apartment building, the only time you see your the people in the other apartments is when there's an earthquake. Oh yeah. Yes. Yeah. I guess I was some sort of literacy earthquake. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and because you're part of that community, people get really comfortable with you. So one of the things that would happen all the time was people would try to bring their animals on the bookmobile. Um, yeah. And, you, you know, you'd have to – the goat in particular was a, um, somebody that wanted – they said that it was a therapy goat to right. help with them with anxiety. So we finally came with you can tether the goat where you can see the goat, but I'm not going to let down the lift to bring the goat onto the bookmobile. Yeah. I feel like you're within your rights to uh, kind of demand to see some kind of paperwork to prove that this goat is a therapy goat. Like, did the goat go to college and has like a, <laughs> a goat degree are, in being a therapy goat? So working in mobile services and in rural libraries in general, I, you can't, you don't actually get to ask because there's not paperwork for this. But I've turned away more dogs and cats than I can count a goat and like lizards. And then one time I was working at a library and the local 4-H club asked if they could use our conference room. And so the rules for the conference room are absolutely, you can use the conference room. And as long as anyone can come in, right? Like you can't tell, turn anyone away. So they all showed up and they were really excited. And then I went in there like an hour later to check on them and they had spread hay all over the floor and let their guinea pigs out. (laughs) And they were just like using it for open guinea pig playtime. Yeah, this is I, I actually am kind of into the idea of just having a service animal that I didn't send this thing to college. It's just, uh, this is just the, the goat I use to not be anxious. And yeah, that sort of thing might just happen naturally. I think and, that's totally what was going on there. Yeah. yeah. And there doesn't necessarily need to be any government paperwork. And the reason that like they have a certification program for it is that they also have laws saying that businesses must accept this goat. If it has the papers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and if you can trust the person to not be a dick about it, you can just say, okay, sure, have your anxiety goat on the bus. But obviously, you couldn't trust the people with the guinea pigs. No. You know, the so, little, they were they were little girls, to be fair. And I think okay. they didn't maybe understand that their guinea pigs were not as embraced a part of the community outside of 4-H. <laughs> <laughs> You know, we basically were just like, this is really cute. Please put the guinea pigs away. They did. But people have a different relationship with their animals in a lot of these communities too. And you really want to be, you know, really respectful of that. Um, But at the same time, like, I'm pretty sure goats like to eat paper. Yeah, yeah. That was what I was going to say is that there's kind of like an inherent conflict here. Like goats are things that you bring into places to get rid of things like extra paper. (laughs) 
Wow. And the yeah. thing with the bookmobile too, that particular one is narrow enough that if you stand in the aisles, you can touch both shelves on either side. Like there's only one aisle, right? And and so it's it's not like you could even be like, just put the goat in that corner and it will be away from the paper, the books. Because it's it's really packed. I feel like you and Mark Twain would have a lot to say to each other. Like Mark Twain was like a fascinating person who did um, a lot of interesting things with his life. But he, uh, in the book Roughing It, which is like a travel journal as much as anything else, um, he actually takes the Pony Express across the U.S. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, it's it's amazing. It's one of my favorite books. Um, but on the Pony Express, like they're in this sort of carriage with mail and with books. And the encyclopedia is the thing that people fear the most because it's <laughs> on kind of like a shelf. And every time they get like they careen back and forth across the road or they hit a rock or something, this book like comes out of nowhere and can like hit you in the head. <laughs> I feel that deeply, Erica, because I have gone over a speed bump too fast and knocked about 300 books off a shelf. <laughs> I believe you. <laughs> yeah. And it's this horrible sound where you're like, oh, you just hear the crash and you're like, that is so much work. That is so much work that I just made. Yeah. You're going to need a couple of goats to clear that up for you. Yeah. <laughs> Was it just that they weren't strapped down well enough or? So you don't strap down all of them. It sort of depends on where you're going. The way it actually works is the books are on a shelf that's angled down. So gravity should hold them, hold them down. And then when you're packing the shelves, you pack them really, really tight, like tighter than you normally would. And sort of just the, the shelf being angled and stuffed does it. But gotcha. if you take over, if you go around a curve too fast or you take a bump too fast, it, it really doesn't matter. They're going to come down. I did multiple different kinds of mobile library service. Um, and another thing we would do would be to, to have carts that were not quite so stuffed. And then we would go to schools, senior centers. For a while, I was going to an apartment complex that had a whole bunch of, of young people who were refugees from Somalia. And you actually take the carts out, go into the lobby and set up a tiny mobile library. And so those ones you don't want packed as full. And that's, that's when you'd strap them down. Right. So it's really fun to be in that the little tin can um, full of books, especially when you go into places where there's kids that don't get a chance to go to the library very often. And they'll like surround the bookmobile and start chanting because they're so excited <laughs> for you to open up. And then you throw open the doors and they like blast on. And it's so reaffirming to see these people that they, they are so young and in so many cases, like really impoverished. And they still have such a positive relationship with books and with reading and just that lust for literacy. And it's really wonderful. I had the wrong kind of like rural experience. Like when I became like a bird biologist full time, I moved to North Carolina and I worked in a town that had 600 people and 300 of those people were actually in the jail. So it was like a town of, oh wow, yeah, effectively 300 people. And how many of the people were running the jail? <laughs> yeah, right. Oh. Probably the rest of them or something. <laughs> Yeah, the jail was interesting because it was surrounded by barbed wire, and it was the one place you could go to see shrikes, which need something like barbed wire to kind of butcher their prey, which is interesting. Wait, how did they? How did they do this before barbed wire existed? Um, they're like kinds of trees with thorns on them that they'll like impale okay. a lizard on and stuff. But a lot of people clear those trees because they're sharp and pointy, so uh, they'll find anything with a barb on it and use that. Gotcha. Um, but uh, the town that was next door that was slightly larger is like 1,100 people was called Ellerby. And in Ellerby, they had something called lawnmower races. And that <laughs> that was what the town did, like in the warm months was the lawnmower races. And so 
I went to one of these and I, I thought, okay, like this is going to be awesome. It's going to be like all of these kind of like redneck engineers, like taking their push mowers and like taking out the blades and then making them kind of like careen around and like, they're going to cross the finish line and totter over. And it's going to be like, I don't know. It's going to be like that show on TV, like the little robo wars thing where, you know, they have to flip the robot and stuff. I thought it was going to be yeah, battle bots. Yeah. Battle bots. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about, but no, it was like people who had taken the, um, what's it called? The governors out of their riding mowers uh, to make them go at like 90 miles an hour. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. And they would like put helmets on and like ride around these like obstacle courses and like just fling themselves off of these mowers. And it was like a NASCAR race for lawnmowers for different weight classes. It was absolutely horrifying. And, and all the whole town would come out and like cheer for this because that was what the town did. Like, frankly, like it would have been much more like wholesome and wonderful to have a bookmobile. (laughs) Maybe you could go like propose that to them or something, because this was, this is horrible. And, you know, everybody was just like, oh, you just got to get over your fear and then you'll enjoy it. But I, I spent the whole time, you know, with my hands over my eyes, like not able to watch. (laughs) Yeah. You know, one time Justin and I, uh, found out that there's a lumberjack festival nearby that has a hot saw competition. What's that? So it's it's basically like like people take these chainsaws, but you know now that the chainsaw has like a blade, like you know that's like eight feet long, and they soup them up like you would a hot rod, and then they oh, compete that kind to of hot see saw. see who can build the best hot saw. And uh, we were so Justin and I were so excited. We were so excited. <laughs> And we got all the kids out there and we were like there for it. And they started at the first one and they started crying because oh, no. it was too loud. Oh no. And we just had this horrible, like sad thing where we had to just pick all the babies up and walk out where we just like mournfully looked at the hot saws <laughs> <laughs> and then drove an hour and a half home and comforted everybody. You got to get a babysitter so that you can go out to the hot saw competition. You know, we should next time because I'm really sad that we didn't get to see this wanton hot saw destruction. You made the right choice, though. I mean, like, I I tell this story. This is a this is a bad story to tell, but like when I was like three and a half, this will age me. Jaws came out, and my parents wanted to go see Jaws, so they took me. <laughs> Oh, no. Yeah, they couldn't find a babysitter. So they took me, and it was like this very deeply scarring experience. And I think I brought it up maybe in my 20s to my dad twice about how that was like a bad move, like for parenting. And the second time I brought it up, he's like, why are you still talking about this? (laughs) (laughs) It's not like we're having any more kids, so. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking about that a little bit today about like, there's, there's so many things with parenting that you get so kind of desensitized to like embarrassment yeah, yeah, um, or being yeah. tired that, that sometimes it can be hard to remind yourself that your children have not been, that this hasn't been traumatic for them in the same way it has been for you. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and they're still like normal people mm-hmm. about boundaries. Yeah. My mom, I was, I think six months old maybe younger, when Alien came out in 1979. And my mom, uh, I was apparently sleeping on her lap for that movie, for the whole thing. 
Do you think it like affected you subconsciously, your desire to make strange creative things like from then on? I, I've wondered about that. Mm. I've wondered about like, I don't like eating fish. Yeah. <laughs> and I wonder if it's because of the face hugger, but like the thing the face hugger didn't sound like fish. Well, how do you feel about soft shell crabs? Like that's the real test. Oh. <laughs> yeah, no thanks. <laughs> well, there you go. It's probably had a lasting impact on you. Anyway, I appreciate your choice to bring all of your children home during the hot saw event. That was the yeah. right yeah. thing well, to do. The, the other alternative would be to like drive around until you find a place to buy earplugs. Yeah, no. And, and I, I just, they were already upset at that point. So we'd gone out early. We bought some corn dogs that we didn't realize were like the length of their femurs. <laughs> yeah. That's the right length for a corn dog. They they measure it to each each client. I you know I have some really amazing pictures of my kids like struggling to eat these corn dogs that are so long they can't hold them and also get them in their mouth at the same time. <laughs> um, and then we also you know we went to their local history museum before the the hot sauce actually started up, so we did get to do something too. That's good. That's good to hear. It's maybe my my saddest. Maybe the thing that I'm saddest about this summer is because we usually, there's so many wonderful like local festivals in this area that are sometimes wonderful and strange. And every year we try to go to two or three of them that we pick just based off the name. Um, and that's not happening this year. Yeah. So I'm, I'm sad to be missing Slugfest. <laughs> <laughs> you have a Slugfest? We have a Slugfest. And the, the best part of Slugfest is the slug races. Uh-huh. So for slug races, they take, they go on a hill and they put down a blue tarp because it's Washington. So everything is done with blue tarps and they hose it down and cover it in dishwashing liquid. And then they get three kids together and they put them in this like full body rubber tube that they strap up the back so that their arms and legs are completely strapped to their body. And they put goggles on them with little slug antenna, knock them over on their stomachs and they have to wiggle to the finish line. (laughs) They get intense about it. These kids are, they are there to win. And they should because at the end, there's a giant medal that you get to wear. Wow. Does it have a slug on it? It does. It does. And it says like, like slug race champion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, we have one. um, One one was, one was won by Ethan and it's enshrined. (laughs) I don't know if there is such a medal, but I really, a metal, but I really hope it's made of a metal that is constantly slimy. Oh, oh yeah, that would be good. Yeah, if not, you're gonna have to grease it up every night. Yeah, should do that. I think gallium would fit the bill, but you probably wouldn't be able to enjoy it. So yeah, just just <laughs> go with a, go with a little elbow grease with slugs. Yeah. Are you ready for the next topic? Sure. Uh, Erica, your topic is arguing with your husband about the insects in your fridge. So I, I feel like I've like cursed myself with like refrigerators and biologists and stuff. Um, I've always had strange (laughs) things in my fridge. So when I went to college, um, I was, I started off as a chemistry major and, you know, I was given my college roommate's phone number ahead of time to basically like talk to her so that we could coordinate and get to know each other before we moved in together freshman year. And, um, so I talked to her and Every time we catch up, she tells this story about how I made such a bad impression on her because we were talking about getting a mini fridge and like, she was like, well, what would we keep in it? And I said, like anything, if you're a biologist 
And I, I think I, <laughs> I named some things or something. And in retrospect, I understand like why she was a little creeped out and why we ended up not getting a fridge. <laughs> um, but like over the years, like I have become a biologist and like we keep a lot of strange things in our fridge. So my husband is like a more serious, um, he's more serious about specimens than I am. Like when we do field work, we are generally doing his work and we're collecting we're collecting a certain kind of moth that lives inside of a plant. So you have to be kind of like a specialized organism to live inside of a plant and overcome the plant's defenses in order to survive. So we go, you know, to different countries to get these things. We go around the country and stuff. And um, so we've sort of partitioned our fridge in a strange way to, to kind of accommodate all of this. Anyway, during the past month I've been moving things around and I noticed like a moth sitting in the fridge and you know, it's a, it's a little moth. It's maybe like three millimeters across, but when do you find like a moth sitting in your fridge? So I confronted my husband and I said, you need to do some like sanitation of your specimens because there's a moth in the fridge. And he's like, that's not my moth. (laughs) that's just a moth. And I'm like, how do you think a moth got into the fridge? And he said, well, you know, basically I take no responsibility for this moth. There's no way that it's my moth. My moths are very specialized. And I (laughs) said, like, this is, this is a member of the grass Lariad family that you'll want to take a look at. So we like carefully open the fridge and we're like peering into the fridge and there's this tiny little three millimeter grass laureate moth like in the fridge. David hasn't been like storing specimens in the fridge for like a year, but this is the moth that he studies and like it's just living in our fridge and we don't know what to do with it because we don't know where it came from. <laughs> and so we can't like release it into the environment, but we also it's like special, like they don't live in Arizona. And like, it may have come from anywhere. So we're just going to like, let it live its tiny little life in our fridge and like do whatever it wants in there. (laughs) Find out what parts of the your your diet shares with the diet of this moth. I know. I mean, like, I would love to put like a little tracker on him, but he's so tiny as it is that there's no way to like follow him. So he just he just kind of like lives in our fridge and is like, the sort of embodiment of like coming to coming to you know loggerheads about like what we do with fridge space and like how good we are about you know keeping our specimens uh, separated from from our food. <laughs> <laughs> do you have you named him Erica since he's a part of the family? Oh, you know what? I should I should name him. Yeah. You can you can name him right now. Oh, okay. It'll be the name of this podcast too. <laughs> This is like a big ask. Do you have any suggestions? See, we already have a symphony of Roy's in our house, right? Like there, since, since my last um, appearance on topic Lords, uh, where I was so desperate to get ants, we've had like an entire uh, three ant colonies move into our house. And um, like one of them has entirely taken over the bathroom and there's just nothing that we can do about them. So when we find one of them, like I've named them all Roy, right? (laughs) (laughs) When we find one of them in a different part of the house, like, oh, this one's a Roy, like return it to the bathroom where it can just like live out its life. Um, Yeah, it's, 
it's uncomfortable, but like they're not harming us, and uh, so they get to live well, there. And you can't shit anymore. <laughs> not not in peace. And we've actually had this conversation about like how big do the animals have to be before you start being uncomfortable, like pooping in front of them. You know, oh, right. it's like there are hundreds of them in there, like watching us, right? <laughs> yeah. Are you are you thinking biomass? Like, <laughs> is it a collective thing? I guess how many animals really can watch you poop before it becomes uncomfortable? Number of eyes. Yeah, exactly. I feel like even if there were thousands in there, like that would just be creepy, but it wouldn't be embarrassing. Whereas like if they were all the size of like guinea pigs or something, I would be like, oh, they want something from me. So <laughs> It would have to be like a, a, a collective, like a species with a hive mind that oh, yeah. all, like, amongst all of them together, you can be embarrassed by them w- watching you, but any one of them would be fine. Yeah, I agree. I think that that... Like a slime mold. (laughs) Like collective consciousness is embarrassing. And then there are like thresholds that you cross. Um, So we need to name this moth. It could just be Roy again. Yeah. The fridge, the refrigerator Roy. (laughs) Refrigerator Roy is really good. Okay, let's do that. (laughs) I'm going to make you a name tag and mail it to you, Erica. (laughs) Put it on the fridge. Just say Roy's room. Please do. <laughs> Roy's getting a Lordy Award. <laughs> Are you ready for another topic? Yeah. Uh, so my topic is, how do you pick an effective charity? This is something I was thinking about when we started seeing uh, the protests happen in the past month or so. Uh, I had wanted to donate to like a bail fund or something like that. And I was uh, looking at, like there were all these charities bouncing around that people were talking about. And I was not really able to find much documentation about the effectiveness of any given one of them. And like, since then people have, I've also seen people saying like this particular, I don't remember which one it is. So I don't want to badmouth it, but this particular charity, uh, it doesn't actually do what it's talking about. And you know, this just, they just take your money. There's that concern, but there's also just the concern of like, is what it's doing even that effective in the grand scheme of things. And what I ended up doing, honestly, was I ended up I ended up buying the um, bundle for racial justice on itch for for like 50 bucks. And that money went to whatever charities they decided it should go to. And I I just, I figured they probably did a good job picking one. And at least I got these video games, if not. And so I'm just wondering, like, do you two have any advice on, on how do you, how do you do this better than I did? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that like for me, I, I definitely like choose charities and just give to them. Um, or I choose like, like over and over again, Yeah, I choose organizations and I give to them. And when these things come up on Twitter, I don't feel like it's urgent that I give to that particular charity that's being advertised because that I know already that I'm giving to some kind of thing that's working at the roots of the matter. Um, so in this case, like, so I give to the Southern poverty law center and they do all kinds of things with racial justice. And like, occasionally, like when we have money, we donate to the ACLU Yeah, because like they know what they're doing and they have the capacity in place to take donations and they know how to scale. And so these charities that are being like promoted, um, very suddenly on Twitter, they don't have capacity. I remember, yeah, reading about the the Minnesota Bail Fund got like something like fifty times last year's 
in total income in the in a week or something like that and they were just like we have no idea what to do with this money <laughs> right yeah volunteering has always been really important to me i mean i think that's the biggest reason that i went into librarianship and and took that that master's degree and did that with it you know because service is is so important and i found that that we tend to donate to charities that we've had direct interactions with the ones that we've volunteered with or that we've uh, spent time talking with and when they're out in the community. Because uh, I think you really can really get a sense when you sit down and talk with other people who are volunteering or when you're actually volunteering for an organization with how well organized they are, but also how passionate the people who are working there are. Um, I think there's definitely some charities I volunteered with where really it's more of a social club that gets together and pats themselves on the back a little bit. But yeah. I don't know that you necessarily get that until you, you do a volunteer shift with them. My friend Hope said that there were uh, two women who were like raising a charitable donation thing in the workplace that she used to work at. And um, it was like an academic office that she would work at. And eventually, you know, because like everybody gave some when they were raising the money. Eventually she asked, like, what are you using this money for? And they said, like, oh, we go on vacation with it. Like, we're just raising money to go on vacation. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there is some like element of like your right to kind of be a little bit more uh, open with your wallet towards uh, towards organizations that you know that they are spending the money on like good causes, um, unless you just want to send somebody on vacation. Yeah, I, I think yeah. a good way to do that too is to ask for like granular specifics about how the money is going to be spent, because the organization that I was talking about before. Um, when they would do fundraising, they wouldn't tell you what they were going to spend the money for at all ever. And and if even as volunteers for the organization, when we pressed, we wouldn't really get details. But this was also a place that, you know, would not have their annual meeting in a school gym. It would have to be at a country club. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think when people aren't forthcoming with and, and it, when I compare that to places that I've worked like Page Ahead, which is a wonderful charity in Seattle that gets books directly into the hands of children in high risk communities. They would tell you exactly where everything was. They'd be like, you want to know how it's spent? Come with me into the office. I'll just show you the books. <laughs> yeah. But I think there's also, um, there's also like an element of like, if you can, you should be donating to, to like a group of charities that you've selected so that they're. So you only have to do the work once. Yeah. You only have to do the work once. And like, maybe, maybe if you are doing a little bit better, you add a charity or something like that. For me, I, I care about climate change and I care, I care about biodiversity. So there are a couple of like charities that I give to like um, the Okapi Conservation Program. So they like hire rangers to protect the Okapi in Africa, but they also like donate to education in the village and try to employ people. So there's not like pressure to kind of um, sell wildlife and stuff. Um, so they're really kind of working on like a whole project. But when when there's like a particular issue that comes up, it's then not like I, I don't feel like I'm not doing anything like I'm I've already decided to do something. So, you know, I know that when you go to the store and they ask you, like, for example, like, um, do you want to donate one dollar, five dollars or ten dollars to some you know local food bank or something? They may be doing something, but what they're really trying to do is gauge how much um, how much income you have um, and how much like disposable income you have. So they're trying to gather data on you by doing that. 
So I just, I never give to charities um, in the kind of like um, drive-through way where they're just asking, do you want to round up or do you want, um, do you want to donate 50 cents to something or $1 to something? No, I'm going to, I'm going to think about it ahead of time, donate a sizable chunk of money to something that I feel like is effective. And then, and then I'm done. And then I'm not challenged by all of these different demands. Uh, like I, I know yeah. I've done something already. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, donate to Okapi Conservation. They're amazing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I think, uh, why don't you just put all of your charities in the show notes? Sure. Are uh, you ready for another topic? Yeah. yeah. Elizabeth, uh, your topic is erotica in the public library. Sure. So this is um, something that came up when Erica and I were just on the phone the other day. I don't remember exactly how, but... Um, around the, the 1970s, librarianship in the United States really changed. Um, up to that point, librarians saw themselves as like their, their job was to teach people what they ought to like and to better the community and make it more intellectual. And then there were some librarians in the 70s that were like, guys, hold on. These people paid their taxes and they bought these books. What if instead we bought things that they want to read? <laughs> and that is porn. <laughs> So most public libraries, and I'm not going to say all because, you know, but most public libraries and all the ones that I've worked in actually have a very robust erotica collection, um, both in their physical books and in their ebooks. And they're some of the best circulating books in the library. It's really, especially working right around the time that Fifty Shades of Grey come out, it's really interesting to see who chooses to use that book, uh, that avenue to kind of explore their sexuality um, and it tends to be largely middle-aged women. Um, and frequently in some of the communities that I worked in, middle-aged women in, in very conservative communities. Um, but this was kind of like a safe way for them to very privately uh, explore new ideas. Yeah. And, and this is this is a stereotype that, that men like visual porn and women like romance novels. So we're not talking romance novels, too. <laughs> right. I was, I was, I was going to make – I was going to ask for that clarification. Like – is it, is it the same kind of thing? Okay, so there is a spectrum. And one of the fascinating things about this is that you can judge these books by their covers. Okay. <laughs> so one of the types of librarianship that I did was um, mobile services for people that were homebound because they were usually uh, disabled to the point that they couldn't come to the library or because they lived, mm -hmm. they were elderly and lived in such a rural place that it was uh, too much to ask of them. So you show up with 50 books, right? And you can't read them all. So you have to learn how to judge essentially the smut level because that's something that is also when you're sitting down and doing an interview with somebody, a reader's advisory interview to find out what they like, you have to very gently find out if they want, you know, some kissing and handholding or if they want. <laughs> I, had, I had one lady one time and she, I, she told me she liked 50 shades of gray. And I asked her kind of how she felt with that level. And she was like, I thought it stopped too soon. <laughs> <laughs> so I gave her some ad rice. Um, but, it, you know, and so it's what's interesting is that the publishers actually use different binding. Um, you can kind of separate these romance novels. We'll paint them all as romance novels into three buckets. You've got what tend to be cozy or Christian romance novels that have basically no sex in them. You have the like bodice rippers in the middle. And then you have actual erotica. The first category will have a mostly white cover with a couple embracing on it fully clothed. It will be maybe an inch thick and kind of the size of a regular paperback. The second category will have a secret cover where you open the first cover where everybody's clothed and then you open this to the secret cover and there's no shirt on the man. So, you know, it's spicy. 
is there like a is there like a cutout in the in the outer cover so you can see part of the inner there cover? There is, and it opens yes, up? yes, usually. Excellent. Yeah, and it's it, that's like kind of glossy. That's what you get like at the grocery store, right? And yeah. that's going to be three to four hundred pages. It's going to have um, kind of cheap paper. These are the ones that circulate the most. And then in your final bucket, when you get to erotica, you get a book that is significantly larger. It's maybe two inches taller. It's only about an inch thick, and it has an extremely glossy cover. And that will be something like um, the Masters of Menage series <laughs> or um, Hot Cops. That was another one that was really popular when I was working. Um, and so once you figure out kind of what people like, you can just sort of walk through the fiction section in the library and pull out the smutty books based off their covers. So are they all are they all put in the same section of the library or are they like some of them in computer science and some of them are in history? I mean, they're all put in fiction. Um, some libraries will separate out their romance, but the problem with doing that is that it creates what we call a genre ghetto. And that's when you get um, something like Sense and Sensibility. Where do you stick that? Do you stick that? If that's a romance novel. Do I stick it with the romantic books or do I say, oh, no, no, this is a good book? Yeah. And, and especially when you take up something like Lonesome Dove, which is a really beautiful book, but it's also a Western. And then when you try to separate out by genre like that, it just gets really messy. Tell us about Hot Cops. I, Erica, <laughs> I have a confession to make. I never read Hot Cops. <laughs> I, I just shelved it. Actually, that one was like never even made it to the shelves. You just scan it in and it would be right out on a holds request. You know, from what I understand, um, usually several cops and the lady who loves them. I was going to, so I was going to bring up, like, do you think with our now shifting cultural understanding of police, do you think cops are just going to get hotter? Oh, I don't know. That's hard to say. So another thing that's, that's kind of fascinating about this whole genre is how the, the role of consent has changed over the last 20 to 30 years, mm -hmm. where if you read women's romance novels or erotic literature from like the 90s and 80s, 80s and 90s, there's almost always rape in them with the hero rapes the heroine, usually their first encounter together. And then when you go to, you know, right around 2000, that sort of stops happening, but it's still a very awkward kind of half consent. And if you read things that have been published in the last five to 10 years, they like, they stop and there's a full conversation about, are you sure you want to do this? I'm not sure. Oh, and, and it becomes a, has become an integral part of showing that, that this is a positive experience to make sure that that explicit consent is written into the novel. And I think that is kind of magical because for a lot of young girls, this is really how they have are exposed to sexuality for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. That's really neat. Do you think those, those books are like the older books are going to get some kind of like content warning slapped on them? No, because I don't think they're taken seriously enough for that. Okay. Um, a lot of them, it, 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 they they are published once or twice, and then they kind of just disappear. So I, I don't think that will happen. Uh, which is, like I said, kind of a shame. I mean, I was I was a an avid reader of romance novels in middle school, and I remember really being very confused by how unloving a lot of those scenes were. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, that could be something that, that like a library a librarian could apply a sticker. Yeah. If they bother to, to read what's in it. Yeah. If you, if you read all of them, but I think you also just, you get into like, what do you do with those, those novels from right around 2000 where it's a little ooky, but it's not actually. Yeah. You could just have a little ooky sticker. Just, this made me mildly uncomfortable. So I'm putting a sticker on it. 
Yeah. The way that we actually got into this conversation when we were talking a couple of weeks ago was, um, was really interesting because I think you were talking about taking every question seriously. Oh, yeah. So one of the reasons that I can speak to this so much is because one of the things as a librarian that I really, um, really believe in is taking every every request seriously and treating it with dignity. And I was working in a small rural library. And like I said, every request with dignity. And after a while, um, I started to build trust with some of the patrons. And I, I had a group of women that would come to me regularly and ask me to help them select erotica. <laughs> Which is touching. <laughs> it was, you know, it was to, to have somebody's trust like that, especially these were women in a very religious community. They would come with their sometimes, you know, seven, eight kids and shoo the kids onto the other side of the library. And it was a big deal for them to come and and ask me that. And I was actually really, like I said, before I was was really pleased that our community was, um, was able to let them explore that part of the human experience. So, yeah, it's, it's very cool to have like a, a story like that. Like, I, I feel like, um, just kind of like a lot of experiences you have in the community in general are sort of like, I don't understand why person X does thing Y, you know, it's like, um, kind of like a lonely experience, um, trying to understand other people from a distance. And like, this is not that kind of interaction that you had with that community at all. No, no. And, and I, I do see, I, was, I mean, I've seen some libraries that are like that, but like I said, I, and I think this is what we were talking about before. I think the biggest thing is just treating everybody and every request with dignity. Um, and, and most of the time, I think when people are embarrassed to say something, they're embarrassed to be vulnerable to you because they're afraid you'll mock them or that you won't value them. Right. Um, so when somebody comes yeah. in and they want to bring the goat on the bookmobile and you just like I said, like treat that with dignity, you explain why you can't and work with them to find a solution. That's the biggest way to build trust in communities. It's one of those things that's so simple, but also so difficult to do because you can't be tired and cranky and just decide to be a dick. You know, you only have to do that once and it just destroys your, your relationship. You should like come yeah. and talk to like the professors at the University of Arizona <laughs> or something because like everybody's so busy and you get these like random requests and you were talking about like um, referring somebody to like a, a professor with a specialty in a particular field. But like when I get requests like that, um, I, I tend to ignore them because I, I don't have the bandwidth to, to kind of like understand the person and why they're asking that question. Like yeah. I'm under so many deadlines and stuff like that. I just can't engage that kind of stuff. So you're farming out the indignity of being like ignored and not taken seriously <laughs> to, to like the academics in your community. <laughs> I mean, in that particular one, that was a really... An interesting question too, because so this man, he was part of a garden club and there was like this feud going on in the garden club about the the purple Prussian potato because the varietal of the purple Prussian potato had been named purple Prussian potato before Prussia was an actual state. And so the question was like, how did it get its name? How, how could this (laughs) potato have this either either the source about the name was wrong or there was, I don't know, some sort of potato based conspiracy. (laughs) And this guy would come in really frequently with this question. And finally, I mean, we did our best and finally we just had to to send him to, um, I think we found like an agriculture historian, historian of agriculture to send him to, because it was like, we just couldn't at that point. And, and these are, 
talented group, you know, a librarian has a master's degree. All of us are sitting there. We're professional researchers. And we spent like a week on this and couldn't. <laughs> yeah. That's it's so fascinating that like, that's the sort of question that I will, will occur to me. And if I can't find the answer in 30 seconds, I'll just forget it. Oh no, give it to the library. Like the, if you find the right group of librarians that will make their week. Yeah. <laughs> you get like pages and pages of notes that you're leaving each other, each other about how to, you know, dig out this one little question, especially when they're local history questions. Yeah. They're a lot of fun. That's very cool. So you, I think it's, it's always um, a shame to me that more people don't know that, that libraries do that that you can call with any question and somebody will sit down and research it for you. That's their, that's literally their job. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the best part of their job, the part that they're looking forward to all day long (laughs) is to help you with your dumb question about (laughs) potatoes. Delight. You're like, Oh, I I got through all of the terrible parts of my job and now I can just focus on the potatoes. (laughs) So yeah, the the public library um, it does a lot of really cool things, and a lot of it is is mostly just the secret mission of the library is just to connect people up with the information that they want, and that means fiction, like helping people select erotica. It means helping them do genealogy research um, and learn more about themselves. And yeah, it's a it's a really it's a neat institution. I understand why it's one of the the more trusted ones. But in terms of of the police and erotica, I I really don't know how that's going to go, but I would like to plug a tingler here. <laughs> Maybe the best name that I've ever heard. And I want to say, let me give it just a second. I'm going to Google it to make sure I get it right. Okay. It's called Unicorn Butt Cops Beach Patrol. <laughs> and it does what it says on the tin. That's going in the show notes. I'm going to read that one. For, I, for so I haven't read any... Chuck Tingle, but I get the impression that like once you've read one, you've read all of them. Oh, absolutely, yeah, and they're they're parodies; they're not really erotica. <laughs> okay, um, but they're also delightful. <laughs> yeah, are you ready for another topic? Sure, uh, Erica. Your topic is hiring assistants for field biology and then trying to live with them. I don't. I don't know if this is going to like inspire good conversation. This is more like this is like a plague. Uh, for field biologists is to like find reliable field assistants who are not um, psychotic in the field. <laughs> so do you need to be, do you need qualifications to do this work? No, I mean, basically like these people get recruited out of um, college classes or like, you know, somebody knows somebody who was good in the field last season. You can kind of construct a CV where you um, build up your reputation for being good in the field, but nobody really knows. And like these jobs are so ephemeral anyway, that like, it's hard to get references for people or it might be, you know, the one field season that they ever do. But field biology is really kind of, um, it's very um, difficult work because you're constantly working and it's kind of unstructured. So you have to, you have to eat with the people that you're working with and you have to kind of live with them. Like you have to food shop and you have to sleep in the same rooms. Sometimes like sometimes you have to sleep in the same tent as the field assistant that you're working with. And like, there are different kinds of like hierarchical structures in trying to do research and they should really listen to you. But if they see you as their friend, like they might not, they they might not want to take instruction and so on. And, And this is, this has to happen for like months at a time sometimes. 
Um, so like I've had, um, I've had fantastic experiences and some, some of my, some of my closest friends were field assistants at some point, or like people who I worked for in the field, um, you grow very close to them, but then you also have just, you know, profound, um, personality mismatches. In, in one case, I had a field season um, where I wasn't allowed to choose my own field assistants. And one of them was um, fine and until she wasn't fine. And it turned out that she was like bipolar and didn't was like too embarrassed to to say that she needed to go get medication to control her bipolar disorder. Oh, oh. shit. Yeah, it was it was real wild. And then the other person was this like woman who um, was like a trucker and she was a lesbian and she was like just coming into her own in the field. And then she just had these conflicts with this other woman because the other woman had like she had kind of like anger problems, which triggered anger problems in this trucker lesbian who had grown up in like a Christian cult and like when confronted with anger like showed that she was a very angry person also. So like in the middle of this field season, I had to like call a friend who was like a manager um, at like a, a food processing plant. And she had to like walk me through deconflicting <laughs> like people who had like very deep problems. And so I had to learn how to talk about like, we're doing this work for the team. And like, what, what are you doing for the team today? <laughs> 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 Which was wild. But like, I, this is, this is like any field biologist that you speak to will have one of these stories. And the one that like kind of speaks to me in the kind of like deepest, most meaningful way happened to my friend, John, um, who is a curator of birds in North Carolina. And um, he's like a very open-minded person. And um, he goes on field expeditions for like six months at a time with his, with his uh, field people. So he has to hire through the museum and they're really doing the fundamental work of understanding like how bird populations are doing all over the East coast of, of North America. So he, um, <laughs> so he hired this field assistant or I, I'll just back up and say like, I handed him an album of like North Carolina music that I really wanted him to listen to. It was called Bower Birds. And of course, like if you have like a bird title, it's going to appeal to an ornithologist. <laughs> and he said like, <laughs> Never, never try to get me to listen to this music. Never show me this again. And this is like a very kind person with like no, he, he wouldn't harm anyone. And he got very like upset by this album. <laughs> so eventually, like over time, I got him to open up to me about why he didn't want to listen to this thing. He had taken this these two field assistants to South Carolina with him for like eight months to study the Swainson's warbler. And they lived in a trailer together. And every day the two field assistants would go out and they would take data, you know, in this long-term data set, it was like a 15 or 20 year data set on the Swainson's warbler population in this region. And then they would come back and they would, you know, cook dinner together and they would organize data or whatever they had to do at the end of the day. And it turned out at the end of the season, they had not collected any data, but they had written this album and they were the Bowerbirds. <laughs> oh, wow. They got written up in the magazine of like the, 
the museum, like about how passionate they were about music and about birds and stuff and how they had produced this album. But they ruined this <laughs> data set that had been collected for like more than a decade. <laughs> and like they just used that opportunity to go out and like pretend that they were collecting data about birds. And if you listen to this album, it's like it's so enmeshed in the southern landscapes. Like they write about cypress and pines and um I'm I'm kind of like underselling this in some ways, but like the the music is so fantastic and it's so like there's such good naturalists in their descriptions of things and the the sort of stories that they tell in the music and how it how they're enmeshed in the landscapes. But they 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 did this during the summer. And today I actually found an article about them because I was thinking about them. <laughs> they claimed that they were studying the plaintive warbler, not the Swainson's warbler. Like the oh, plaintive no. warbler doesn't exist. And that they like lived in a cabin in South Carolina together. Whereas like what they were doing was living in a trailer with this ornithologist. <laughs> whose, whose work they ruined. Oh, no. Can't recommend the album enough. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the this, this field assistant problem, like, would you say this problem would go away if you just had a decent budget to hire people? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that... Um, like there are a lot of things that could be done better. So if you had a budget to hire people, you could stay in a different place than them, or you could, <laughs> you could like offer them a salary and then they could, you could be choosy about who you picked. You could just hire the people you like again. Right. Yeah. And that would be worth it to them. Yeah. But all of these jobs are like, you can pay us $400 and we will drop you off in the middle of Florida for three months. So you can like listen for ivory built woodpeckers and tell us if you hear any and we'll come pick you up. We'll drop you off with enough food and we'll come pick you up when we get you. <laughs> yeah. And like, you know, these jobs don't appeal to normal people. You know, they appeal to people who kind of want to be away from society for their own reasons. So like you're already kind of attracting like a weird bunch but then on top of that, like, especially if you go to the tropics with somebody, you know, it's hot, they want to take off their clothes, they want to meet people, they want to do all kinds of things. And like, it, it becomes complicated to keep people uh, interested in like finding, finding bugs or whatever it is that you're doing, measuring plants, you know, being sweaty, being uncomfortable you know, contracting right. dengue, like whatever it is that you're doing that day, <laughs> they don't want to do it. That's kind of fascinating because you're when you're offering them that job, you're basically offering them to take a something that's outside of the normal social contract, right? Yes. So then they're not going to, by extension, understand other social contracts. Yeah, it, that's exactly right. Like you're already doing something strange, and like like it takes so much effort and internal structure to get to that point. But at the same time, like every pathway through field biology is a little bit different. So you meet people who, you know, they're um, adrenaline jockeys who just want to climb the highest thing and sample at the top of some mountain. Like, even though there's no question uh, that is being answered by that, that's what they're going to do. And they're going to, they're going to challenge themselves and like go ultra light and not take enough water. So like, they're just setting themselves up for 
um, some kind of like medical emergency. And like, if you're at all kind of like safety oriented, you're the person who's like, oh God, I have to carry twice as much water because <laughs> the person I'm stuck on this island with is an asshole. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> that kind of thing has happened to my husband a lot um, because he does actually work on small islands where like the boat is coming every three weeks or something and not everybody speaks the local language. But for me, it's it's much more like finding people and then having them try to you know, juggle social things at home and field work, um, which doesn't work. Like you have to basically extract them from their home life and put them in an entirely new situation if you're going to ask them to do something like measure plants for 14 hours a day. You know, the growing seasons for, or like the season that you can do field work in, in temperate North America is so short sometimes that like, you have to be entirely dedicated to it. There aren't really like weekends or anything like that. And you have to like learn how to be kind to people, even though you've spent five weeks with them and like you are annoyed at this person who you didn't choose to be with in, in kind of like a long-term way, but they, they define everything about your life choices. It's interesting. Like it's an interesting experience to have and like if you're lucky slash unlucky like you'll get an album out of it (laughs) you know otherwise you get data and then you have to do something with that data (laughs) erica when you're when you're gearing up to go on one of these what is that like like the night before and you know it's going to be this really intense hyper-focused situation really separated with people you don't very know very well but you have reason to be at least from experience being a little trepidatious about working with like what what does that feel like you know it's exciting it's always exciting to go somewhere it's kind of like the coming back procedure is a little bit complicated so to to gear up for like a field trip you know depending on what you're doing you may actually need to like be thinking about that for months ahead of time because you might need permits to import machinery um, that does specific things like Lycor machines that measure leaf respiration or something. And those things, like if you were to import them to a country, you would have to pay a tax on them. So like there's a lot of complicated procedural stuff that might um, proceed going into the field. And then depending on if you're flying there or if you're driving, you know, if you're driving, you get to take some of your own stuff with you and like maybe some of your own food. So it's kind of like, it's even kind of like preparing for the quarantine. Like, what do I need for like a month? You know, when is the next time I'm going to see a supermarket? So that kind of stuff is like, it's kind of fun because you get to like think about budgeting, like what you need for like an entire month or something. I've done field work where like I go out for three months at a time And then I come back and all of my friends are like, oh, I didn't think you were coming back. Oh. (laughs) And, and I'm like, well, you thought I was going to like die out there? Like, oh no, like you just haven't been around. Like so-and-so hooked up with so-and-so and and you missed that. And like, 
we're not friends anymore because you're basically not around for me to call. Wow. <laughs> so I've been through like various kind of friend groups that don't understand that like I'm not going to take phone calls in French Polynesia or I'm not going to take phone calls like, you know, in the Rocky Mountains because there's no reception. So the coming back process is always a little bit jarring um, because people don't understand what it's like just basically to not be able to communicate for a long period of time. And that often comes with like not being able to see a doctor for that amount of time, not being able to see a dentist. It is kind of like quarantine in some ways where you're like, you're just kind of like in a holding pattern where you're working very hard, but um, somehow like life is happening at a different pace somewhere else. And then you kind of smash back into it and it's very jarring. Are there any yeah. any coping skills that you've you've kind of developed doing field work that have made quarantine an easier experience for you? I mean, I, I think that this is this it's just very similar, right? Like I think that this is like this is my bag. Like I know how to do this, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I, I know how to like you know, our stove broke and like I know how to get out the camping stove and like do okay for a couple of days, that kind of thing. But I don't know. I mean, like, I think that that kind of like the fundamental aspect of like living in the field with your assistants is um, kind of a question about like um, collaborating with people at different levels in whatever hierarchy you're in and like how how close do you allow them to be with you? So like that's a part that like that is not mirrored in this quarantine. Oh, it, it's got to be, you know, when, when you're leading a group of people, it's so nice at home to go, to, to go home in the evening and kind of take your mask off and not have to be in charge. And I imagine when you're sharing space with people, you don't get that ability to, to drop out of that role in the same way. No, you don't. You don't. And like, and I, I think that like, basically the only things that have helped me with that is like trying to talk to people who have been in the military who say like, you know, if you're, if you're basically like in a control position like that, you don't get to be friends with the people who are working for you. Like you have to show them that you're willing to do anything that you're asking of them, but you don't get to be like close friends with them. So you no longer have like confidants among that group or whatever. This has led to some like funny situations where like it's, you know, month one and everybody wants to drive down into the town together to have pizza. And I'm like, no, not me. Like, I don't need pizza yet. <laughs> <laughs> you got to sneak onto the roof of the car and hide there. <laughs> right. Then they can tell ghost stories about that forever. <laughs> but it was our boss with her non-hook hand. <laughs> Isn't that awful when you have that moment and you realize you're becoming somebody's dinner party story? <laughs> <laughs> have you guys had that where you're doing something and you're like, oh no. I, I spend so much time convincing myself that like nobody cares about the embarrassing things I did that <laughs> I just can't afford to think like that. That's mentally the safest position you can be in. Yeah. 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 I I would love to be there someday, Chip. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. Do you know, Elizabeth, about... Have you been the subject of a dinner story? <laughs> oh, God, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think that the worst one was when I, I first went to college. And um, this is not a particularly happy story, but I, I went to a really prestigious women's only college and I developed obsessive compulsive disorder in my first quarter and um, totally fell apart 
you know, in women, it presents around 18. And I had to drop out of school. My roommate had to move out and she should have moved out because I was crazy. (laughs) (laughs) And um, because I just, I just hadn't, I had zero ability to cope with it. Um, And yeah, and I remember just looking at her one night and being like, oh, I'm going to be your bad roommate story. (laughs) I kind of just wanted to pull her aside and be like, I'm so sorry you saw me at my worst when you didn't know me enough to love me. And so all you have is just this snapshot of me, you know, falling apart. You can send her this podcast with like an apology or something. (laughs) Stephanie, I'm so sorry. That could be the other title of the podcast. Stephanie, I'm so sorry. I killed our houseplant. Oh no! <laughs> oh, were you, was it was it an obsessive compul- compulsive thing that killed the houseplant? No, it wasn't. I was just it was sort of. I mean, I, I so my my particular ritual center around counting and keeping things really really even, and I was basically just so consumed with measuring everything in my room to make sure it was at right angles to everything else that I couldn't uh, couldn't take care of the plant. I was not nearly as important to take care of that as it was to get out my protractor at three o'clock in the morning and measure all the implements in my desk. Oh my goodness. Yeah. At least you didn't kill that plant out of vengeance or something. No, no, just just neglect. Just a life I took from neglect. You you counted it to death. Yeah. That's got to be incredibly hard. Like it, it's one thing to have one of these issues all your life and by the time you're 20 or whatever you have a bunch of coping strategies for it. Yeah. But it's another another for things to pop up like while you're trying to, you know, start your adulthood. And suddenly you have to deal with this additional shit. It's like having an additional puberty. It was very much like that. Yeah. And to feel at 18, like you had kind of gotten through it. Right. And now you're in college. It's supposed to be your time to blossom and find weirdos like you. And then finding out, no, you're actually so weird. Even the weirdos don't want to be your friend. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I, you know, I had always been a little bit, I had tendencies in that direction my whole life. But um, yeah, when I turned 18 and moved out, I just, it just exploded. Um, and it, it's surreal because one of the interesting things about obsessive compulsive disorder, definitely for myself and for most of the people I've talked to that have it, like, you know that it's not rational. You know that, that it, and it's causing you distress that you can't stop doing it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and it's, it's very strange to kind of watch that happening to yourself and to go from being able to control these things and be like, oh, well, I'm a person who just likes to be tidy to like, this is now a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really scary. Yeah, it, it's it's very much like having a conversation with yourself that is antagonistic. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, and then yeah, and and it particularly cruel, like you said, that it, it happens when you're first starting to. I mean, like you're 18, you don't necessarily like you know how to do your laundry, but you don't really know how to keep on top of your laundry, and that should be your big problem. Right. <laughs> Not like how do I navigate our country's broken mental health system. <laughs> If you were to like assign percentages, how much do you think was like visible to other people versus like what was going on in your head during that t- that period? Yeah, yeah. It was extremely visible at that period because I I also had a series of compulsions surrounding the way I walk. And so I couldn't walk normally, and so it was very obvious that something was wrong with me. Um but in terms of what was going on in my head, I mean it was just like it was like constant in my head. So, and I hid, I I mean, that's one of the biggest things that happened is once I I started to lose control to the point that I couldn't walk across campus normally, I stopped leaving my room because it was embarrassing. 
Is this like a you have to walk on like opposite colored tiles or something with with your left and right feet? Basically, yeah. It was more about keeping the so we, I said evenness was very important, right? Evenness and straight lines. So keeping the left and right sides of my body so that they have totally symmetrical stimulus. Hmm. Is okay. very difficult when there's an odd number of stairs. Oh yeah, right, right. Yeah, you got to do a little jog back up the stairs for one, and then jump down, or or memorize the stair count of all of the stairs of the building so that you can go up and down the correct number of flights to keep yeah. it even. That's what I was doing. I've done that sort of thing all my life because I'm bored, but that's not the same thing as like needing to do it. Yeah, and and with OCD, it, it's considered a disorder when it takes up an hour of your your day every day to engage in your compulsions, or when it's causing you really significant distress. Yeah. Because most people have something that they do that's right. almost like a game with themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, like all the all the all the disorders like are just exaggerations of normal human traits, right? Yeah, yeah, I think that's definitely true. So I, I said that you and Mark Twain would have a lot to say to each other. And I'll, um, I'll say that again, because this uh, reminds me of like a story that he tells in Life on the Mississippi, um, where he talks about these steamboat captains who are so obsessed with getting everything on their steamboat. Oops, my cat is jumping on my computer. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Get out of here, Roy. <laughs> So he tells this story about steamboat captains who are so obsessed with making their steamboat go down the um, the Mississippi River like exactly evenly that they don't do very much in terms of like making sure that the passengers are all like seated properly or anything like that, but they part their hair exactly in the center, and that fixes it. I love that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So we're out of time on Topic Lords, but uh, thanks so much for being on. Yeah, thank you for having us. Uh, Elizabeth, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? I am not on the internet, Jim. Good for you. Uh, Erica, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? If you're um, out there, I'm probably already riding on the top of your car on the way to pizza. (laughs) So just check the roof and then enjoy the pizza. Enjoy the pizza. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it, or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com. You can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode.